Welcome to Humanitu. I'm Adam Williams, creator and host of this podcast series about humanness and creativity. Today I'm talking with Dr. Chip Thomas, also known as Jet Sonorama. He's a family care physician on the Navajo Nation in Arizona. He's also a widely known and respected public artist. And he's got stories, many more stories, than we had time for in this one conversation. But we got a heck of a start. More on that in a minute, though. I often describe Humanitu as being about humanness and creativity. And in these podcast conversations, of course we dive into the stories and insights of my guests, like Chip, but I also see this in a bigger way, as a vehicle for connecting with you, and all of us together, too. So along the way, as Chip shares incredible pieces and perspectives from his own lived experiences, consider this question that I ask in every episode. How do you live humanness and creativity in your life? Now, Chip, he was recently selected by the United Nations for his Painted Desert Project, one of only nine artists from around the world chosen to be part of an initiative that marks the UN's 75th anniversary. So we talk about that. And also in this conversation, we talk about street art versus public art and how the good doctor got his street name, Jet Sonorama. He grew up in the South, in Raleigh, North Carolina. When the schools were being desegregated in the late 60s, that led to one of the most profoundly shaping experiences of his life, and to the Quaker philosophy that guides his life even now. As a young, new doctor, he went on to serve a four-year commitment on the Navajo Nation, where still today, more than 30% of the homes do not have a water tap or toilet, and nearly 30% do not have electricity. Chip made that four-year commitment in the 80s, and he's still there, more than 30 years later. We get into the extraordinary impact of COVID-19 on the Navajo people, and the uranium-tainted atomic history that lives on in the lands and the lives there. We talk about the soul wounds that persist. And with that in mind, real quick, a side note here. I've included in the show notes for this episode links to four organizations, which Chip likewise shares on his website. These organizations serve the people in the Navajo Nation, and those people need our help. So after you listen to this conversation with Chip, please go to the show notes to learn more. On other subjects, Chip and I share plenty of laughs, and we talk about master storytellers, people who have influenced not only his work, but mine, incidentally, as a documentary photographer and how he views the creative social practice of that work on the Navajo Nation and elsewhere in the world. And then there's his 12,000-mile cycling trek that earned him a Guinness World Record. By the way, I've posted a link to the documentary of that trek as well in the show notes. And there was that Widowmaker heart attack on a separate cycling adventure that took him to the edge of death at age 44. We talk about other things, too. Here's my conversation with Chip Thomas. Chip, welcome to Humanitu. Thank you, Adam. It's a pleasure to be here. <laughs> you know, I came across some what I think is very new information this week that you have been selected as one of the artists by the UN in celebration of the 75th anniversary. And when I looked back at information today about that, it turns out today is actually United Nations Day. Huh. Is that true? <laughs> you are part of this celebration? No, yeah. 
That's that's that is true. That's correct. I wasn't aware that UN Day is um, on this day, but <laughs> yeah, no, I mean it makes sense because they uh, did a big press release yesterday. Okay. Yeah. So I mean that's a fascinating thing actually because you know when I was talking with them months ago about possibly taking part in this project, um, we were talking about this being the 75th anniversary of the uh, UN. And it occurred to me that the UN was founded after World War II, and more spe- specifically after the dropping of the bombs in, uh, in Japan, um, Nagasaki and Hiroshima, but, um, I, which is an interesting thing because, you know, um, there's a lot of uranium mines in this area and people, um, activists certainly here in the Southwest are very aware that this is the 75th anniversary of the dropping of those bombs. So it follows that upon the dropping of the bombs, the ending of World War II, there was the founding of the uh, UN. But yeah, I was one of, um, I think, nine artists chosen to take part in this program, in this project. So yeah, I'm quite honored and and humbled. Congratulations. Sometimes you're described, your work is described as street art. Yeah. Or you as a street artist. And you also then are known by a name of, of a street artist, Jetsonorama. All right. So you're, you're Dr. Chip Thomas and you're Jetsonorama. And I can't imagine there are very many doctors that are doctor something. And oh, by the way, here's what it is when I'm an artist out on the street. So w- will you tell us about this name? What, what does that name, what does that mean to you? What's behind the name? Yeah. So the name is Jetsonorama, as you said. And um, so I was born in the late 50s. And um, that was during the uh, peak of the atomic age. And as well, okay, so my name is James Edward Thomas. So my initials are J-E-T. And uh, my father was a senior. So I am essentially the son of Jet. <laughs> but as a kid growing up in the early 60s, one of my favorite uh, cartoons was the the Jetsons. And my first dog, in fact, I named Jetson. And <laughs> maybe, yeah, uh, let's see, I'm trying to think of when I got my Gmail account. But anyway, I tried to get the name Jetson at gmail.com. And Google said, sorry, uh, Jetson has been taken. Try one of these three options. And one of the three options was Jetsonorama. The Orama part of the name for for me references um, mid-century modernism and the atomic age, uh, which instantly resonated. So I I jumped on it. (laughs) Yeah. Got it. Yeah. (laughs) I love the Jetsons too, but I, I, you know, not to, not to highlight the age here, you know, too much, but that coming out in the sixties, right. I didn't realize it as a kid that by the time I was seeing the stuff, there were reruns, but you got to see them when they were, I got to see the original. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> About the term street art and street artist, you know, I suspect that there's an awful lot of the main population that that's one really vague and two, whatever connection they have with it, might relate to underground or illicit behaviors like just graffiti on trains on other people's property. Yeah. So just is, is there a way that you describe that when people ask, what does this mean when you make street art? Right. Well, you know, it's a funny thing. I was having a conversation years ago with some artists and 
in light of where I'm based, I'm based here on the Navajo Nation, and um, I, a lot of my work appears along roadsides, but not necessarily streets per se, as in cities. And um, artists who are identified as street artists really are primarily based in cities. And um, as you said, most are getting work up illegally. Uh, some are getting work up legally. But I tended to gravitate towards the term public artist because, um, you know, I it's done outside and there's frequently an interaction with people who are in the area as I'm getting the work up. And yeah, so I think of myself more as a public artist. Graffiti, I think, as is talked about presently, currently, is really um, the the people who are called writers who are doing usually text-based work with some graphic element. But um, yeah, there's a distinct difference within the community of people working publicly between graffiti artists, writers versus street artists. And sadly, there's not a lot of appreciation of street artists amongst the graffiti community. <laughs> there's been a lot of evolution there for sure, because it started off with such basic tags and, and like you said, text-based, but it involves, it has grown and developed to be so much more and things that, again, I, I think sometimes are controversial or debatable in the art world because, you know, as we know, there are plenty of the highfalutin type um, perspectives in the history of, of art. And so where does street art fit in? But can certainly respect the public artist, the distinction there and how you just described that. You mentioned being on the Navajo Nation. Yeah. So let's let's talk now about what brought you there? And I know what brought you there because I know that you've talked about this a lot of times. So um, for efficiency's sake and to save you having to say this one more time, <laughs> I'm going to give a very, a very quick gist on this that I know that you grew up in North Carolina and I know that yep. how you became a doctor was in an opportunity through the National Health Service Corps. So you had your medical school education paid for in exchange for committing to four years of service in an underserved healthcare area. Yeah. So my question about this is, did you have a list of places to choose from uh, or how did you come about identifying that you were going to go to the Navajo Nation nearly 30, what, 33 years or so ago, nearly 34 ago? Yeah. Yeah. And Adam, let me just uh, thank you again for taking the time to do the background reading and uh, yeah, just to take this to a different level. So one of the things that happened, I went to college in, in North North Carolina. I went to Wake Forest University. And in 1978, my junior year, um, I took a course on the flora and fauna of the so Sonoran Desert, um, knowing that everyone in that class, including pro, the professors who were teaching it, would be doing a field trip across country in two vans from North Carolina to to Mexico and then doing um, a trip along the course of Baja, looking at the fauna and flora that we had spent the uh, spring semester studying. And that was my first time coming west. And the point of all this is on the way back to North Carolina, we had to drop a student off in Flagstaff at the bus station. And that was my first time seeing Flagstaff, but I was just blown away by its beauty. Um, you know, with the tall San Francisco peaks. And um, it just seemed like a 
a a cool town. <laughs> but you know, we were there for less than an hour. But I noted to myself, man, I could see myself living here one day. And uh, yeah, as you said, when I finished my medical training in 1987, I knew I had a four-year obligation. But in truth, it was a classmate from Meharry, uh, a dear friend named Peggy Crawley, who was already working at this site with her husband. And uh, they invited me to, to interview here. And I came and we worked together here for five years before they, they departed. But that's specifically what brought me to Arizona. And so and that was an interesting thing as well, because at the time um, I was doing a lot of cycling and had, had started my family practice residency in West Virginia and had an unfortunate ex, uh, experience that was race-based um, while cycling in an isolated holler one afternoon and had decided that I would leave West Virginia and finish my residency in West in Ohio. But the government had the opportunity to assign me to a state where I had to find a work location within that state. And I was assigned to the state of Mississippi. And I was really concerned about being a cyclist on isolated roads in Mississippi and shared that with my friend Peggy. And that's when she said, well, you should come and interview here. I and in fact, she said to her husband, I think um, Inscription House would really resonate with Chip. And clearly, this is someone who knows me well, because as you said, 33 years later, I'm still here. Well, and those connections in life, right? Like there are, I, I can't say that I've necessarily gone back and made a list of all those really key handful of moments in my life, but it seems like in yours that that might be one of those things that had this one connection not happened, right? How much different would my life really be, dude? But you know what? You know what? I, I, <laughs> it seems that my life has just been a series of those, um, those moments where you know critical decisions were made that really impacted the way that I have chosen to live my life and where I'm living my life. For example. Uh, 1968 in Raleigh, the school system was desegregated. I was in uh, sixth grade that year, and I was going to start junior high school, as we call it in the South, as opposed to middle school um, in 1969. And my parents were really concerned about the violence happening in the school because, you know, kids from the black neighborhoods were being bused to white neighborhoods and vice versa. And once kids got to those schools, there was violence. So my parents didn't want me in that environment but um, had wanted to put me in a boarding school. But ironically, they were looking at putting me in a military school, a military institute there in the South, which I really didn't want to do. <laughs> <laughs> I really didn't want to do that. Uh, the summer of 69, my parents took a trip to the Bahamas and they did it with my grandma, who normally I would stay with, you know, when my parents would, would take trips like that. But since my grandma went on the trip, my parents needed to find some place to put me. And someone just happened to tell them um, about a Quaker community in the mountains of North Carolina. So I went to summer camp there while my parents were in school and I mean, were um, on this on this trip. And it turns out that I became really good friends with the guys who were in my tent. There were five of us in the tent. And the other four guys were all going to this place called the Arthur Morgan School, 
which um, is the alternative Quaker boarding school that I ended up attending as well for three years. And the emphasis of that school, I mean, I don't know if you know a lot about Quakers. I don't necessarily identify as Quaker, but I can cer certainly say that that experience um, has made me the person that I am. You know, they're Quakers have um, an emphasis on living simply so others can simply live, um, serving humanity and building community. There's certainly more to the religion than that, but those were some of the values that I was exposed to it in that school. And I really didn't appreciate necessarily what those values at that time, because, you know, this was between the ages of 12 and 15. And physiologically, there's a lot happening within our bodies <laughs> at that age, you know, uh, right. frequently. <laughs> um, so it wasn't until I left that environment that I could appreciate the lessons learned um, or lessons I was being taught there. But yeah, that particular moment just happened, you know, it was a monumental decision that was made that influenced the direction of my life. In the time that I've been here, 1992, I've been here for five years. And uh, one day I got a call from a guy saying, hey, I'm uh, looking at doing a bicycle trip from the top of Africa to the bottom. And I'm trying to find a black physician to accompany my brother and I on this, on this trip. And which was ironic because I had been thinking, in fact, I already had books in my house at the time of cycle touring in East Africa. And um, I had thought I would work in Kenya, try to climb Mount Kilimanjaro. And I, so I was thinking I would take like three months off to uh, do this. But then suddenly it just happens that, you know, I get a call to take part in this trip, which I did. And um, you know, that was a life-changing event, for which we also happened to get a Guinness World Record, I might add. Wow. Yeah, yeah. So it's like, I'm just thankful for the amazing opportunities that have come my way. And, you know, I I guess I have to give myself credit for choosing to take advantage of these amazing opportunities. That is a huge part of it, right? Is recognizing when the moment is there and then being right. willing to <laughs> you know, sometimes courageously leap. Yeah, yeah. And it's funny because in that moment, you don't necessarily know that this 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 is going to be a life-changing event. <laughs> and, you know, frequently it's in retrospect that you go, wow, <laughs> that was a life-changing event. That was a good thing. But yeah, so, I mean, even the fact, you know, that we're having this conversation, that came about because, um, so as a result of having done the bicycle trip um, in 1992, I thought, you know, I, I, I just, I personally got a lot out of the experience of stepping out of my comfort zone. And um, I, I realized from that trip that in order to think outside the box, it helps to get out of the box. So since 1992, every five or six years, I've been taking off three months and doing a mini sabbatical. And um, so 2006, I had an especially hard year between um, like within a three month period of time, my wife and I decided we would get a, a divorce. My father died and I lost the family home of 50 years. And many times when I do these uh, sabbaticals, you know, it, it's an opportunity, as I said, for me to step out of my comfort zone and just see how people are living in other parts of the world. 
Um, but it's also an opportunity for me to reflect on my life and the meaning of life and, you know, to hope to get an epiphany for the purpose of my life. And, you know, it never happened on any of the preceding sabbaticals. But in 2009, after having gone through this tough period in 2006, 2007, I chose to travel in Brazil for three months. And, um, you know, I just thought I would chill out and study an instrument called the Pandero. Um, I was studying Portuguese and I was photographing. But the last three weeks of that trip, I fell into a really welcoming international community of street artists who, you know, it didn't matter to them that I, you know, was this old black man, you know, who um, was with them. They just, I think, appreciated my passion for what they were doing, accepted me as one of them. And upon leaving, uh, an Italian dude grabbed me by the arms and said, look, keep this energy going. And so I came back from that trip, just fired up to make street art. And I should also say that just before leaving, they showed me the work of the French artist J.R., who had done an installation in Rio. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah I, I think you know the installation I'm talking about. Uh, women are heroes of, well, there's several fellas in, in Rio, but um, on one of the large ones, I can't think of the name of it, he put faces and eyes of women from the community on the exterior of their homes, um, which is up on a mountainside, but they're looking down onto the, um, you know, onto the wealthy beaches of uh, Rio. But that was a life-changing moment, just seeing that, because I had always been interested in street art, and I've had a dark room in my house since I came here, and it was like, finally, I saw someone who was able to combine photography with street art. And I came back, like I said, fired up. I've been given a mission by the Italian dude who said, keep this energy going. And um, as we as we were saying earlier, a lot of times when people do street art, you know, it's done surreptitiously. So I was going out at night, sneaking around, getting work up. And um, so that's how all that started. And it just evolved into... I. What I think is a fascinating and dynamic conversation with this community um, of which I am a part and am not a part. <laughs> right. Yeah. And in that community, so again, you went there to be a, a family care doctor for this limited period of time. Obviously, we've already said you've gone decades past that. There are things there that really spoke to you and have kept you there. Uh, I want to go back, though, to when you first went there. Yeah. You did come in as somebody who was new, as an outsider, uh, and you were a fairly new doctor. I know there's a lengthy process in, in that growth, but yeah. to this family care practice. Yeah. And I'm just wondering if there was something you went in, you know, just thinking, okay, these are the answers that I have. These are the things that I know. And then was there any particular experience where you really just got humbled by that and realized I need to step back and, and, um, well now maybe you can even laugh at, at how that went. No, I mean, um, that, that's a great question. I, um, I, I would like to think that I've always been humble and have attempted to be a good listener and thus a good learner. You know, I, I, I am someone who appreciates that, 
you know, the majority of the pharmacopoeia, you know, of the medicines that are being used now are derived from plants. And there are indigenous cultures all over the world who know um, the values of plants within their regions. And here on the reservation, there are tra traditional medicine people who use various herbs um, in healing ceremonies. So I was very open to experiencing as much of that as I could. I don't, you know, attempt to implement any of that because, again, you know, that's not my culture. And I think, um, yeah, I mean, that's not how I was trained. But there has been a nice dialogue between indigenous medicine people and Western medicine practitioners here on the reservation. So on the reservation, you know, for people who might remember from the news, uh, you know, maybe some months ago, it was on the Navajo Nation where the highest per capita rate of infection has been yeah. with COVID-19. With COVID there's, there's been tremendous suffering there. And so I think that there has been a unique experience for you as a doctor in that environment and under the circumstances of the mortality rate being so high. I, I guess the question I'm trying to get to is what your personal experience with loss and grief maybe has been there and what you've witnessed in the community from specifically this pandemic. I guess, because we could take this in a lot of directions. I know that there's, if we go back to the uranium, there's a legacy of health issues over that. What has your experience during the pandemic and this period been? Yeah. So within, I guess, psychology um, circles and sociological circles, people um, talk about cultures having um, cultures who have been negatively impacted, like uh, the Jewish community during World War II or African-Americans as a result of being forcibly brought across the, the Atlantic um, during the period of slavery um, and or the um, genocidal policies of the government towards Native people. Those cultures developing what's called a soul wound, where there is, um, yeah, just kind of this lingering sense of um of having been oppressed and you know how that impacts the way people feel about themselves and each other and how that limits their aspirations and uh, dreams you know and uh, so there is that element of the the soul wound is is present here. The pandemic and its ravaging impact on the community here, I think, you know, is an exacerbation, another another element to that to that ongoing trauma that that people experience, the intergenerational trauma. Um, and as you said, during the month of May, especially, uh, the Navajo Nation had the highest case positivity rate in the nation. Fortunately, the the rate has decreased, but it's starting to uh, climb once again, as it is nationwide. Um, I heard the Navajo Nation president, Jonathan Naz, talk about how the virus really has exploited one of the strengths of the Navajo Nation, um, and that is its emphasis on family. In that, on the reservation, on the Navajo Nation, the Neta. There are, you know, many multi-generational homes where you'll have grandma, grandpa living with their children who are living with their children. 
And within that type of setting, it can be hard to socially distance. And, you know, I talk about this a lot on the reservation. There's an abundance of natural resources used for generating energy, such as coal, oil, natural gas, uranium. Uh, there's also water and, and aquifers here. But yet, you know, 25 to 30 percent of homes on the reservation don't have running water or electricity. So, yeah, all these factors came together to, as I said, exacerbate the quality of life and the uh, the intergenerational trauma here on the on the nation. So pre-COVID, you know, I mentioned the uranium. There's a legacy of the health issues with that, lung cancer, and and other health concerns that are more significant, I I think, on the on the nation than throughout the rest of the country. So these are things that. Again, you have, I think, a particular window into the health of this community that is extraordinary. Do you want to talk some about that connection with the uranium? Because then it also leads us to some of the artwork that you've done to speak out on these things. Yeah. And I think ties into the fact that you've been designated by the UN as an artist uh, that, you know, is for their hashtag the world, the, the, the world we want. You know, yeah. I mean, there's ripple effects and, and interweavings of the work that you do as an artist and as a, a community doctor. Yeah, no, they, they, yeah, there's, um, there's a definite correlation. Um, yeah, so, I mean, I, I think of the, uh, the Navajo Nation as a case study in neo-colonialism. Um, and as I was just saying, there there's just an abundance of natural resources, and if that wealth were returned to the to the nation, to the people here, um, the native people here, and actually on um, other nations across the country, would be as wealthy as the Saudis. You know, the um, native people here would be like the Saudis of the the uh, U.S. But um, because those resources have been extracted and um, the wealth has gone to multinational corporations, um, people here have a poverty rate that is amongst the highest in the country. And with the extraction of uranium, you know, there's over 500. So I, let me di digress and say that um, from I think the mid 1940s, uh, like 1945 or so to like 84. Um, the majority of the uranium that was extracted for our nuclear stockpile came from the Southwest here. And there were a lot of Native men, especially, who were um, working in both the uranium mines and the uranium mills. And it was an unfortunate thing because, you know, the government knew, if I remember correctly, as early as the late 50s of the detrimental impact of uranium mining on the miners. Yet, you know, there was no effort made to inform the miners of that and or to put in safety measures to pro protect the miners. And I think it wasn't until, I forget now whether it was the late 60s or 70s when an article finally appeared. I think it was the late 70s, an article finally appeared in the Washington Post talking about the dangers of uranium mining on the miners. But presently, there's over 500 abandoned uranium mine sites on the nation. And uh, what that means is they, they, they haven't been capped. Super, uh, they, the funds for um, cleaning up these sites, the Superfund 
money hasn't been brought to the nation to make those sites safer. So as a result, um, the radioactive um, particles leach into the water table and into the soil. You know, they get into uh, animals, they get into uh, crops that are consumed by people such that, as you said, you know, the rates of various um, lung, thyroid, uh, gastrointestinal cancers are higher than the the uh, national average, and one of the populations that people I deal with here are former uranium miners, people who who worked in the various mines around the area and who have health effects, um, adverse health effects as a result of having done that work, and so they are getting benefits now from the Department of Labor. But working with that population, the patients sensitized me to, you know, what is happening at a personal level, but also at a tribal level with regard to the negative health effects. So, yeah, I've done some pieces trying to raise awareness around the abandoned uranium mine sites and the need for those sites to be cleaned up. So it sounds like the health concerns are continuing beyond what I you know, when I knew that you work with, as a doctor, you work with minors, former minors who have those cancers based on their work in the, in the uranium mines, but because that leaches into all kinds of other things, this really is an issue that continues Yeah, <laughs> far past those minors then. Yeah, right. Yeah. No, they're, they're, uh, yeah, yeah. Their, their families are impacted as well. Um, there are newborns who are born here on the reservation with high levels of heavy metals um, in their system and um, with congenital birth defects as a result of having been exposed through their mothers to the uh, radioactive, the radioactive products. I, I'm somewhat speechless, I think, because, okay, I'm a newcomer to this information. I, I, I've just been made aware that this crisis exists, that this unbelievable circumstance that is just continuing because of a lack of care and protection that should have been provided by our government. Um, yeah, I, I, uh, I'm at a loss for words about what the resolution is for this to take care of the human beings that are living there and that this just continues. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, you know, and sadly there are other examples of our government, um, you know, knowing of detrimental health effects and or doing medical experiments on populations of people. Yeah, that uh, uh, <laughs> that shouldn't occur, that are in violation of the United Nations uh, policies. And but sadly, you know, I mean, it just seems to be the nature of capitalism to exploit resources, to exploit people all in the name of, you know, making as much money as possible. So. Um, yeah, be, be, be shocked, but I, I, you know, I, it, it, it's the, it's the natural consequence of, I think this, uh, economic system. Yeah. If we carry this into your, your creative work, you know, you and I have some similar influences when it comes to documentary photography. I have a background in photojournalism. I've studied with, or excuse me, studied the work of, and occasionally gotten to meet some of these folks. But yeah. uh, I really appreciated the the list of people that I, I know that you have commented on here or there out there, or, or maybe on your own website, people like Eugene Richards, 
Hell yeah. Um, you know, Sebastian Sogato. Yeah. Eugene Smith. I mean, these are all people. Yeah. My wife also, my wife Becca also has a photojournalism background. These are people that we all have their books, their work sitting yeah. on our shelves and yeah. refer back to. And you They're, mentioned JR. JR yeah. is the French street artist who there's a documentary out on that we've watched. I mean, it's so I really appreciate you and I have this common ground. It, it helps me know then that what you are taking as this influence into your work as a documentary photographer there on the nation. Um, yeah, all the people you mentioned and several others are just master storytellers. You know, it's like when we we talk about, uh, for example, the negative uh, effect of capitalism on the environment, on human beings. Well, how is it that we affect change? And I really think it's at an individual level. And the photographers, the photojournalists, the documentarians you just mentioned are all storytellers, are just masterful st- storytellers. And I think, you know, one way of getting people to think differently and see differently is to get them curious about people they don't know anything about, you know, or know very little about. So I, I, I think that's some of what I got from these master storytellers where we're talking about i've always been amazed that when they go into a project it can be nearly constant for weeks for months for even years yeah (laughs) and that what you are doing is just like that i mean you've got so many years now of where you're living within this this like you said tribal story as well as the individual and the family stories within that and i have always just so admired the dedication and the consistent, you know, love and passion for that storytelling, because when you are all done with this, whenever that day might come, the number of years, the number of decades that have added up of what you are documenting in this particular time, in this place with these particular people, it's just such a special body of work. Well, thanks, man. Seriously, I, 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 appreciate that i i have to tell you you know like i said when i first came i um my next door neighbor a guy by the name of ken ogawa is one of my best friends now um had a home dark room and he um was here for about 18 months after i came but upon leaving gifted me his his dark room so i started teaching myself at that point you know the zone system of ansel adams and how to um compose and, you know, develop photos. But I, I, um, even as a kid though, was like, as we were, as you were saying, I was, um, as a kid, I was really moved by the images in Life Magazine. And when I saw the work of Eugene Richards in the late eighties in Life Magazine, um, one of the photo essays he shot that blew me away was, um, it later became a book called Cocaine True, Cocaine Blue, but he was looking at the um, crack epi- epidemic in, in three cities on, on the Northeast. I think two cities in New York and one in Philadelphia. Well, one of the cities was Philadelphia. But he, the image that just floored me was called Crack Annie. And um, it shows a woman who's watching a crack pipe being passed be, before her face. And there were several things about that image that got me. The composition was beautiful, but my question was, how did a white guy from Massachusetts get gain the trust of this community of people from whom he's totally not a part to 
take images like that. So in 1992, I had an opportunity to go to uh, Santa Fe Photographic workshops and to spend a week with Eugene and you know that that was my question to him how do you how do you tell stories like that how do you gain the trust of people of whom you are not a a a part and um the answer is you know just working with people over time and you know I think there's something to be said for for actually working with people you know you know, leaving my home, going to the home of, you know, some of my patients, for example, and being with them as they were hauling wood and helping them in that process, or um, hauling coal or herding sheep, you know, and um, just gaining their trust. And it was Eugene Richards who said he thought that if I were to stay, that I would be able to generate a compelling body of work over an extended period of time. And in that regard, I have to say, too, that, you know, so for 22 years, I had a home dark room and I was going out spending time with people and photographing to the extent they were comfortable. And I was having shows of this work, but it wasn't um, until I started doing the work publicly that I really feel that my relationship with the community shifted because, you know, it's one thing to take photographs of someone, give them, you know, copies of those photographs. But, you know, if I had a show of that work, those people who were photographed never saw the shows. But as it is now with the work along the roadside, you know, people (laughs) engage the work. And it's fascinating for me as someone from outside the community to hear how people feel when they see the work, you know. And it just, um, there's a different level of integrity to it, you know, as opposed to having gallery shows and a different level of responsibility because now that people know, now now that I'm not sneaking around at night and uh, people, after 11 years now, people know I'm the (laughs) one (laughs) doing it. The the conversation, I think, with the community just has really deepened. And I think people on the reservation feel that the imagery that I'm presenting is coming from a place of love. They, I say, I'm reflecting back to you the beauty that you've shared with me over the past 33 years. And um, I would like to think people feel that. But, you know, we were talking earlier about the complementary um, acts of my medical practice and my art practice. And I, 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 so I would like to think that my patients feel that same degree of concern and caring and love, you know, in our inter- in our doctor-patient interactions that um, also appears in my, in my art practice. You mentioned the psychological impacts of, of soul wound before, and I think that with what you just said, taking it out of the gallery where it's other people from the outside who are going to be, right. uh, in a sense, maybe voyeurs of that, you now are putting these on structures throughout the nation, the Navajo nation, where the community itself sees itself reflected back and then gets to know that it's connected, uh, in, in this way. And with you, it's, I, I think that's such a great, again, distinction of gallery versus and, and even integrity, the way you mentioned that. So I can only imagine how that enhances your relationships with them as a doctor. And it just brings it all so much more. I think, uh, it's a tight, tightly woven overall correlation of practice, I think. 
Yeah. No, I was just going to say that, you know, trust is a, um, is a, is a big part of this, you know? Absolutely. You know, if we go back to Eugene Richards and the things that we've seen in his work where he has that access uh, that, that he develops with people to a lot of things going on. You know, I think of an image in particular where there's domestic abuse happening right in front of him, right in front of a man who is there from outside of the situation with a camera documenting it. It goes out into the world or they're using drugs or whatever the case is. And, you know, I have, I have a funny little story with Eugene Richards. My wife, Becca, and I went to a photography event in Miami many years ago, and we just met him where we got a chance to look at his work, his books, yeah. and have a chance to, to buy something. And we were looking at his book, Fat Baby. Yeah. And <laughs> we were engrossed in the book, in our own conversation, and we're walking away I don't know, maybe we're 20, 25 feet away and it suddenly strikes us. We didn't pay for the book yeah. and we stop in our tracks and we turn around and there's Eugene just looking at us jaw dropped. Like, what do I do? And we went back to him, of course, just apologizing profusely. And he's like, you know, what was I going to do anyway? And we paid for the book, but he's just such a humble and wonderful person. And you can see how that would play into his being able to develop that trust yeah, um, just like I imagine, and and we can see that you're doing there on the nation. Yeah, yeah. Well, thanks for that. Yeah, no, he's he's definitely a, a role model. Yeah. With your project, the Painted Desert, the Painted Desert Project, which also is um, that is what the UN selection of you as an artist has specifically called out. You know, you've described it as a constellation of murals. So again, that interweaving of the stories of the community of those on the nation. And you've also described it as a love letter to the Navajo nation. Yeah. Tell more about that because I know some of it is yours. I mean, it's your project. Some of it is your photography being pasted up as murals, but you've also invited other artists to bring other forms of art into this, right? Yeah. Well, no, thanks for asking about that. Yeah. So the painted desert project actually isn't just me. Um, In 2012, I, um, like I said, I started doing my wheat pacing project in 2009. And then uh, 2012, I, well, an interesting thing was happening around that time. Uh, I forget when Banksy's exit through the gift shop came out, but um, it was it was starting to happen, I think around 2008, 2009, that a lot of bigger cities were starting to have mural festivals or street art festivals. And a couple that caught my attention were there was a project in New York City called the Underbelly Project where, oh, I can't think of the name of the guy who curated that. He's actually a friend, but he invited artists from all over the world to come to New York and he would sneak them into an abandoned subway uh, station at night. And, um, you know, they would take their own lights. But uh, over the course of a year, they created this amazing gallery of art which, I mean, you know, it's it, the project was problematic in a lot of ways because the, the public really never got to see it other than through uh, images. But um, the other project that I actually got to experience was called the uh, Boneyard Project. And that was in Tucson at the, the um, there's a aviation museum space, but it's all, so the Boneyard. Yeah, I, know what, I know what you're talking about. It was in that movie, Can't Buy Me Love. Oh, I haven't seen that. 
but yeah, so there, so a lot of, um, the older airplanes, um, used in various conflicts, um, are left to de deteriorate in the so Sonoran desert just outside Tucson. And as a fundraiser in 2011, 2012, uh, they invited some of the best street artists in the world to come and paint planes. And uh, then there was a show of that work, you know, uh, people paid to see it and that was the fundraiser. But I thought, you know, again, based on my experience in Brazil in 2009 with a community of artists, it would be uh, an amazing thing if I could get um, actually artists from the reservation um, and a few artists who have what's called social practice, you know, people who um, spend time in community and work with communities and then make art that reflects community to come spend time on the reservation here on the nation and, um, you know, get to learn about the people here, spend time with people, but then after time start painting murals along mainly on roadside stands, because what I found out early in my practice is that um, a lot of the roadside stand vendors, people who are selling jewelry along the roadside or rugs or pottery, um, appreciated having interesting art on the res on their stands because it attracted international or do do domestic tourists. Um, I should say I'm located between the north and south rims of the Grand Canyon between the Grand Canyon Monument Valley and close to Lake Powell. So there's a lot of traffic through through this area. But um, so in 2012, I invited a group of artists to come out and to spend time paint murals. And I've been keeping that going since 2009. And um, one of the parts of this project that I'm proudest about, actually, is getting some of the artists to go into local schools to do workshops. There's an artist. Uh, I can't think of Kate's last name. <laughs> I'm so sorry, Kate, um, who has come out three or four times and who has done extended projects at a community that's about 35 miles away called Navajo Mountain. Uh, because a lot of the schools here don't have ongoing art programs, but I've had poets come out to do workshops with people. And um, I've been trying to identify artists you know, on the nation here who would be interested in being mentored by some of the more established artists I brought out. And I actually have found, as it turns out, there's a, um, an amazing painter, Daniel Jossley, who lives just a mile from me, who has worked with several of the artists who I've brought out. But um, yes, yeah, so, I mean, it's an attempt to um, not just bring beauty, but also you know, using this project as um, as a means of cross-cultural exchange and, um, you know, with the possibility of increasing commerce for some of the local vendors who are getting their, their, their stands painted. You've been working on a book. Yeah. Is this the subject matter of that book? No, no. <laughs> so the book, thanks for asking about that. <laughs> Yeah, this this past winter, I had a chance to spend a month in Brazil, but I was there from mid-February to mid-March. And uh, when I went to Brazil in 2009, like I said, I came back fired up, man, just wanting to make art. So I was excited to get to go back to Brazil this winter because um, I just, you know, felt I needed that inspiration again. And, you know, I knew I wouldn't be able to count on necessarily getting that inspiration, uh, you know. But I have to say that in South America, a lot of the cities have just creativity that's literally built into the city. Like if you're 
in Rio, um, and in truth, in a lot of the cities in Brazil, even the sidewalks have been in, intentionally designed with inlaid stone patterns and black and white stones to create, you know, just an, a, a beautiful pattern. The buildings um, in Brazil, on the famous architect from Brazil is Oscar Neymar. But I, what this translates into is um, kind of government-sanctioned public art, you know, making art available for the people to inspire folks. So indeed, when I went to Brazil, I wasn't, I, I came back fired up. But when I came back, I um, returned to the States March 21st and immediately, you know, had to go into quarantine because many states in the country were just starting our uh, lockdown. So there was an interesting conflict between, you know, wanting to get out and create versus having to stay stay inside. And I just happened to get a call in early April from the editor of Art Journal Open. Um, actually, it was an email. But she um, said, you know, hey, in New York, we're doing this thing where at 7 p.m. every evening, uh, citizens are going out onto the street and recognizing the essential workers by banging on pots and pans and, you know, just giving them uh, appreciation. And I wonder if you would be interested in creating a poster that spoke to this moment, which was a big ask. <laughs> and I, um, I, sub I submitted a poster, but, you know, I felt, gee, that's, that, it, it was hard for me anyway to come up with one image, which is something that I got from Eugene Richards. It's like, you know, um, Henri Cartier-Bresson has a lot of amazing single images. Uh -huh. um, and there are photographers who attempt to shoot trying to get the de decisive moment. But um, storytellers like Richard, you know, take a, a, a body of images and tell stories over multiple images. And um, so I went back to the editor, Art Journal Open, and said, hey, what I'd really like to do is to... Um, and I, I, I have been given a gift of money from the Kindle Project, uh, art funding nonprofit in Santa Fe. Uh, they gave me a gift of money in 2018. And I put it aside, not knowing what I was going to do with it. But I said to the editor of Art Journal Open, I'd like to use that money to invite some of my favorite poets and uh, a couple other visual artists to have a dialogue uh, via Zoom meetings every couple of weeks to discuss how we're feeling and to, you know, attempt to create imagery or capture imagery that speaks to the uniqueness of this moment. And this moment really is unique. You know, it was the last major pandemic was 102 years ago. These don't happen all the time, but so it's a, it's a special time. So the editor was down. I said, what I'd like to do is to create an online zine as well as a physical zine um, as a result of this interaction between the visual artists and the poets. And um, I was able to assemble, I think, a pretty outstanding group of poets and uh, visual artists to, to have this conversation. So that's the uh, book that's, that's going to, that's the zine that's going to be coming out soon. Okay, great. Yeah. Um, well, I look forward to seeing that. Yeah, but thanks, man. And, you know, I think that so much of making art is, it's about pushing ourselves. It's beyond yeah. uh, our comfort zones, maybe beyond our skill set, beyond, <laughs> of course, with our thinking and our ideas. And, of course, you have done that 
I mean, you did that just to go from, hey, here's a dark room, conventional printing in a dark room, to this is how I figure out how to get this stuff up on the walls of buildings. Right. You know, where we, we push ourselves. What has been your experience with that and how you go about it? Yeah, yeah. No, thanks for asking that. You know, so I have to tell you, I'm, I, I am self-taught as an artist. I didn't go to art school. In fact, I even have trouble, um, you know, with the language of, of art because I don't, I don't really know it. I just know what I see. I know what I feel. And yeah, so I, but I think the thing that drives me really is in 2001, you know, I, as I said, I've always been active. I do a lot of cycling. I did this trip across Africa. And, um, but in 2001, while on a bike trip, I had a heart attack and um, I was 44 at the time. And the type of lesion that I had is called a widowmaker. Uh, it's called that because it frequently happens to young, healthy men who are active. And uh, in fact, uh, I don't know if you know the Arthur Jim Fix, who uh, was a runner and who um, was seen as being largely responsible for um, the movement and running um, in the late 70s here. But he actually, while on a run, um, had a Widowmaker and literally dropped dead. But I had one and I was flown from uh, uh, the reservation down to Tucson and coded in route. <laughs> and um, I, you know, am thankful for a friend who was with me at the time, a woman named Mary Hamill, who um, was responsible for telling the paramedics to give me the right medication that kept me going until I got to the hospital. Then I went straight to the cath lab. And um, when I came out of anesthesia and woke up, the surgeon who had just, you know, worked with me was standing over my bed. And again, I'm coming out of an anesthesia fog. And he he looked at me and said, you are one lucky motherfucker. And, you know, he went on to uh, explain um, how I happened to survive this normally uh, mortal event. And I realized at that moment, okay, boom, I've just been given a second chance at this thing called life and anything I want to do now is the time, no excuses. And uh, yeah, I just decided at that moment, I'm going to live openly and honestly and just go for it. (laughs) And um, yeah, so that's what's been my driving force since 2001. Wow. Okay. So, So that I'm clear here. When you say that you coded, yeah, does that mean you actually died and they had to revive you? I I, I didn't die. I was um, headed in that direction <laughs> rather quickly, and uh, but yeah, I I, okay. I was re- resuscitated and um, yeah. Wow. Okay. That that answers some things too with what you said is kind of I mean I sometimes I ask people for well what is a shaping experience in your life and and I feel like we've covered a number of those things yeah. in this conversation <laughs> but that one in particular when when you have that perspective and we're talking nearly twenty years ago now but when yeah. you have that perspective and it informs and influences the energy and the positivity with which you live your life then. I think that's so tremendous and and it can explain an awful lot of how you're going about um, what I think is is such a tremendous life that you're carrying out. Well, thanks, man. So thanks for sharing that. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I want to ask you about your documentary photography project in Cuba. Yeah. It was about 
telling story of transgender women in Havana. And you also went with a fellow photographer, Titus Brooks Higgins. Right. Uh, what was that about for you? And, and, and why that particular story? Yeah, no. So Titus, Titus actually is one of the pho- photographers who's, um, who was invited to take part in this book project. We, we were just talking about. So the collective of artists who were involved in the project were are, are called the Pandemic Poetics Collective. But uh, Titus is someone I I met randomly. Um, I flew into Oakland maybe, I don't know, 20, 25 years ago and um, went out to get a taxi to go into the city and saw him standing on the on the curb noticed that i think he had a leica and um, i have a leica m6 and we started talking about cameras and decided to share a ride into the city and it turns out he lives in durham north carolina and i'm from raleigh north carolina so anytime i would go home to see my parents i would always take a moment to visit titus and his wife maureen but Titus, for I don't know, maybe twenty years now, has been going to Havana, primarily and um, photographing various communities of people. But in truth, it was his his project um, that he was following up on, working with the um, LGBTQ trans uh, community in Havana, that gave me the access to capture the uh, images that I did. But yes, I was there in February. I was just there for two weeks in Havana and then went from there to Brazil. Okay. Yeah. You know, and I have to say, I mean, part of my interest in that though was um, the people there, there's a community of LGBTQ people here on the res. And from what I know of the history, you know, um, it seems that they've gone from a point a place where they were accepted as, you know, two-spirit people and um, various communities here on the reservations, on the reservation, historically accepted them and saw them as, uh, as, I don't want to say special people, but I mean, you know, they were respected. And then at some point, and I don't necessarily know when this happened, homophobia crept in and um, certainly during the time that I've been here, um, I know of examples of, of LGBTQ people who have been actually murdered because of their their sexual identity. So I think people who are a part of that community on the reservation, especially now, are incredibly fierce because um, they just have a lot of persecution still. It's not a comfortable environment at all times for them. So, you know, I don't, I, I, I had at one time really wanted to do, I had wanted to spend time with more people in that community here on the reservation and just haven't had the access that I had hoped for. I mean, there are occasional balls on the reservation, but I think they occur mainly in what's called Eastern Agency, like in Windrock or Gallup which is about three, three and a half hours away. And I frequently don't hear about them until after they happen. So, I mean, and I I think my interest in that community is, you know, as a person of color, as a black man here in the States, it's easy for me to identify with oppressed groups of people. 
people who frequently are malaligned, who are misrepresented. And um, so, yeah, those are the stories that I'm interested in in, in telling. Okay. I, I like challenging the, the predominant narrative about a lot of these people. Well, and you've said before that you see in your work maybe the role or the opportunity of being provocateur. Yeah. There's also an activism in work that you do. We've mentioned the uranium, but then there also would be when it comes to these social matters, social injustices. And, you know, speaking of that, there is a quote that I saw you have on your Vimeo page where you have some videos that you've made. Yeah. Uh, it's a quote from Che Guevara that says the true revolutionary is guided by a great feeling of love. Yeah. And I feel like that really is is on point for you because we have this work. Again, we've talked about the correlation between the work you do in serving others as a doctor, but then also through your artwork. And so there's a lot of, I think, love and compassion and empathy, but there's also this strength of I'm willing to speak up. I'm willing to express these things creatively and have that kind of uh, voice. So there's the revolutionary and there's the love in that as I see it. And I'm wondering where that comes from for you. Yeah, I mean, so I, yeah, I, 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 I'm a child of the '60s. You know, I am. Um, I, um, I, I remember in 1968, in April of 1968, seeing black smoke billowing over the city of Raleigh um, as people were protesting the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. And um, yeah, I mean, so I, I um, and having gone to this alternative Quaker school, I was there 69 through 72. In 69, the school sent a group of students, well, it didn't send them, but, you know, just made the opportunity available to a group of students to go with um, some staff from the school in one or two vans up to Washington, D.C., to take part in a moratorium against the uh, Vietnam War. And this was actually one of the bigger demonstrations against the war where a, a lot of veterans who had received medals from the government were throwing them on the steps of the Capitol. I think it was the Capitol. Maybe it was. Yeah. But um, so, yeah, in, in truth, you know, a lot of um, Quakers have backgrounds uh, of being activists. Um, I think Quakers identified as witnessing, you know, traveling to places and just speaking truth to what they've seen and witness and sharing that. And I, I think, you know, that influences what I do. But yeah, it's funny. I was just thinking about Che yesterday because, you know, he was trained as a physician and had to make a choice between, you know, bullets or bandages and, you know, chose to fight for people in the way that he saw, he saw fit. And, um, yeah, so I'm, I'm influenced and inspired by, by that example. You know, you remind me of something that I posted. It might've been a couple of years ago on my website, uh, humanity in a blog post that it was about a conversation and an anecdote that had to do with a Quaker clergyman and political activist. And his name was A.J. Musty, and he was at a group meeting when he stood and said, if I can't love Hitler, I can't love at all. Now, this was at the time of World War II. Yeah. That's why it refers to Hitler. But if I can't, if I can't love Hitler, I can't love at all. Yeah. The point there, of course, being that our love has to be pure across everyone. Yeah. And if we deny loving anyone, 
then are we really so great at loving? Right. And yeah, well said. I mean, you know, as, as, as I understand that, that part of uh, the Quaker faith, you know, there's the belief that everyone uh, has an inner light, <laughs> um, you know, which some may call the presence of God. But uh, Quaker, Quakers believe that everyone has that. And for some, it's more obscure than in others. But, you know, it's all about finding that. And it doesn't necessarily mean that you're condoning, you know, the actions of, of people, but you are acknowledging their humanity. Right, right. Do you, so you've mentioned the influence of those Quaker beliefs in your life. Um, again, another it sounds like very shaping experience early on. Do you have any other spiritual framework that you also use in how you direct your life? Um, I, I don't, um, I'm not practicing anything at the moment except compassion. I mean, but you know, I'm not taking part in, um, in, in an organized religion, um, at this time. Well, if we if we all did that, right? If we if we would just hold that love or that practice of compassion, that in itself would be enough to solve so many of the world's ills, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. The the I I would I would love to be able to recall the quote of Martin Martin Luther King Jr. who talked about the uh, moral arc of the universe um, being long but ultimately bending towards justice and. Yeah, I mean, you know, the um, it's it's a, the fight for social justice is is a is a marathon. It's it's not a sprint. And you know, having said that, it really isn't necessarily about achieving some of these um, equal rights, racial justice goals within my lifetime. But you know, trying to create a better environment for the generations to come and the yeah, well and the future the generations who are here who who are uh, younger you know you have said on your website that the question you're most frequently asked <laughs> is how a black doctor yeah. who's now in his 60s working on the Navajo reservation started doing street art on said reservation but that in retrospect it was only natural for this evolution to yeah. occur yeah in yeah. this hindsight of these decades how is that why why is that a natural evolution yeah, well, I mean, in truth, it it happened organically. We we actually, over the course of this conversation, have talked, have touched on each of the elements that kind of led to me um, sneaking out at night, getting those 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 first pieces up, and without knowing where I was going with the project, just having it evolve into, as I said, a deep a deeper conversation that represents what's called now social practice. Um, you know, where artists Im embed in communities and engage with them, not necessarily through, you know, a visual art practice. But, um, yeah, I mean, and I, I have to say, too, that I, as a kid, you know, my mom, I think, is the one who probably influenced my my art practice. And it was a rudimentary art practice in that, you know, she would have me uh, play with collage, you know, cutting things out of magazines. Uh, she was a school teacher, and we she would use an overhead pro projector to create posters for her classroom, and I would help her with that. And in truth, you know, the um, studying the sciences was a challenge for me. It it it, it didn't come naturally, 
uh, and I think in gravitating towards the arts and blending that with my medical practice, I've realized a fuller expression of my of my true being. You know, it's like these two sides of myself or have have come together and just yeah have given a more vibrant expression of who I am. But it also allows me to to pursue a life of service in a way that I didn't necessarily see see coming. But yeah, I mean, it's all the things that we talked about that came together. I would have to believe that with a man of your capabilities and and skills and education and just this whole thing that you could have at any point decided you were going to go try a new environment, a new whatever, <laughs> new everything. Yeah. But you've chosen all this time to stay. Is that about the the social um well, it slipped my mind, the, the term you just used, but about being able to set up in one place and be part of that, immerse yourself in that maybe a simpler life than if you were in New York or San Francisco or something, but in order to help serve others to also simply live. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, there there is a need here. There are many ways people can engage with the community here on the Navajo Nation to, you know, to be of service. So there is a need for people in, in uh, healthcare. So I, the primary reason that I'm here is to provide that service. But I, you know, in so doing, appreciate that um, people, well, as I said, there is a, a need for it. Um, which is not to say that there's not a need in other communities or, you know, in cities around the country. But, um, yeah, so being with the people here, uh, the people are some of the most humble people that I've interacted with. And they live in just a really beautiful part of the part of the world. Um, I had an opportunity to accompany a family of three in 1995. The family is the uh, Delmars, Ben Delmar, Minnie Delmar, Luba. Ben was, I think, around 75 at the time. Uh, his wife, Minnie, was uh, probably in her early 70s, and Lula was 45. And the two women speak only Navajo, and Ben speaks spoke both Navajo and English. But, um, you know, we brought like 250 sheep and goats from their winter camp, roughly 35 miles over five days to the, uh, to, to the summer camp where they could be sheared. Um, and we did that in the spring, but it occurred to me, you know, while we were walking through some of the most beautiful canyons or some of the most beautiful country, as I said, in the world, that the whole sheep herding thing for the Navajo is really a pretense because I think, and I say that jokingly because it really, what they're having an opportunity, an opportunity to do as they're with their sheep is to walk through some of the most beautiful country in the world. And that certainly has influenced me staying here, just, you know, being surrounded by, by physical beauty, by people who are humble and have a beautiful spirit. So, yeah, but, um, I, I have questioned, you know, so what's going to happen to my art <laughs> when I leave, you know, it's like, um, it, like Richard said, you know, I could, produce a a compelling body of work if I stay here. But then, you know, I'm not going to have those same connections and the same type of trust when I move to another community. So, yeah, it'll be interesting to see what, what happens when I eventually leave. This brings us to our final question, Chip. And 
this question is what I ask. It's a version of what I ask every guest, which is a version of what I ask every listener. What I ask listeners is, how do you live humanness and creativity in your life? Yeah. But because you and I've just spent more than an hour talking about all of this. <laughs> yeah. Right. Here's the way I'm going to put it to you is if we were to try to boil it down, I want to go back to the Che quote. The true revolutionary is guided by a great feeling of love. Yeah. And through all of your work, through this this intersection of humanity and the way you express yourself and you show up, I just want to ask you maybe if there's an essence, a, a way of boiling down all this humanity of you, the humanist and creativity, just what guides you in that work, you know, at that intersection? What, what are the essential qualities, perhaps, that you draw upon from yourself? How you see yourself as this is how I care to show up. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so the guiding principles, um, I would say are love, compassion and for forgiveness. And certainly in my 33 years here, I've been shown examples of, of all of that. You know, I, as a physician, I have made mistakes yet the community here has for, forgiven me and is still willing to uh, work with me. So I take that example and apply that to other people, you know, and I, I talked about the Navajo Nation president, John, Jonathan Nez, saying that the virus exploited one of the um, strengths of the nation, which was the emphasis on family. But there is also an emphasis here on co cooperative work. You know, people coming together and looking out for one another. There's not necessarily selfishness or indie individualism, and uh, that certainly inspires me. Also, which you know, if we were to expand that that thinking, you know, to an economic structure, again, I think that you know, it takes us away from a capitalist system where the emphasis is on individualism, which, by the way. <laughs> is driving the high rates of the coronavirus in the country now because I think people are less willing to right. think of the impact, you know, um, of their actions on their neighbors and um, are more focused on their individual liberties. But, you know, that's 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 who we are as a country. You know, the individualism is, um, as American, it's apple pie. But in terms of my guiding principles, yeah, I go back, I, I go back to forgiveness, love, and compassion. Chip, I also have pulled from your website that there are four other websites, which I'm going to include in my show notes, directing listeners to perhaps be able to contribute for how they can help. Yeah. Uh, like Navajo Hopi Solidarity.org. Right. Uh, Kinlani Mutual Aid.org. We are Navajo.org and dig, dig deep.org, which is yeah. a Navajo water project. I'm going to include those on the show notes so that people know a way that they can help contribute to, right uh, thank to, you for doing to those that. on the Navajo Nation. Yeah. Thank you so much for this whole conversation, for the stories, for sharing, for the insights. It, it's such a pleasure to be able to talk with you. Well, dude, yeah, Adam, seriously, thank you. You were saying at the top that um, you really wanted to take a different approach to um, doing this interview and not necessarily do something that was road or routine. And I can say that in the years that I've been interviewed since having started this project, this is probably, um, yeah, the, the most in-depth interview that I've done. So 
kudos to to uh, you and thank you again for the opportunity to talk about everything we talked about and for your interest in my work. That means a lot. It, it, yeah. it really does. That's what I aim to do is for us to reach a depth and a connection that uh, goes beyond whatever might already exist out there. So thank you for saying that. Yeah, Thanks mission you. accomplished, man. <laughs> well done. Thank you. That was Chip Thomas, doctor, artist, activist. You can learn more about Chip in the show notes published on my website at humanity.com. If you appreciate what you've listened to with the podcast here today, consider rating and reviewing the Humanity Podcast on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, and on other players, and spreading the word on your social media pages. Together we can build a more compassionate, creative, and thoughtful world. I'm Adam Williams, creator and host of the Humanity Podcast. Thanks for being here. Jet Centerama. <laughs>